In this episode, Kevin Jacobson, who is both CFO and COO at LogicGate, shares his insights into the advantages of this combined role, the key financial metrics he uses to drive growth and efficiency at a fast-growing SaaS business, and the financial challenges of expanding internationally. Hi, I'm Rob, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Kevin, thank you so much for joining. It's great to have you on. Thanks. uh, Great to be here. I always start the episode with just some entry question. So, Kevin, what is your role? I am the CFO and COO of a company called LogicGate, which is a governance, risk, and compliance software company. Tell me a bit more about the company itself, just in terms of it's a governance and risk. Can you give me an example of sort of the risks that you help manage? Yeah, absolutely. So our approach is to help companies build a platform around all of the various risks that they would experience as a company. So those are wide ranging. There's things like IT security risk. So vulnerabilities within your IT system, third-party risk management is another example, which is the relationship that companies have with third parties or in, in many cases, vendors. Nowadays, you know, the proliferation of software companies, oftentimes, if you're a company, you're giving access to your data to many other third parties, and there's a whole host of risks that come with that. Other examples are audit and controls management for companies that are managing to certain control frameworks, compliance management for companies that are trying to maintain compliance with some sort of regulations or industry standards or things like that, policy management. So there's a wide range of applications that our customers use, but all conceptually around transforming risk into a strategic advantage for them as companies and in whatever they're doing. And we serve a wide range of industries from financial services to technology to healthcare. So that's a little bit about the product and then the industry. Awesome. So you mentioned that you are the COO. You joined the company in 2018 as CFO. And then in October of last year, you've evolved into the CFO add to the COO. So what areas of the business does that cover? Yeah, so that covers really two main areas. When I started, I was the 29th employee at the company, so a fairly early employee. And when I came on as CFO, um, I was the first person that didn't sell in, that wasn't in sales, that wasn't in customer success, and that wasn't in engineering. So the first general business person that would be looking after those types of things at the company. And so from there, I spent about 18 months helping to build out the team that we now call business operations. And business operations is all of the functions that are really about serving the business. Our customers are the other teams and other members of the company in other areas. So that business operations that logically includes finance and accounting, legal, HR, sales operations, IT and information security, and then general corporate strategy and, and project management. So it's the all the kind of business serving functions. And we've been building those out for certainly for the first 18 months of my tenure and then continuing as well. But about six months ago is when I took on the role of COO, which included management responsibilities for the team that we refer to as our global customer organization. And so at LogiGate, we were a fast-growing company. We're adding customers at a significant clip each year. And really what when you're working in subscription software... The first sale is just the start of working on the second sale because you have to generate enough value for your customers that they want to retain you as a vendor. And so 
to deliver on that promise of value and ultimately um, earn our customers' business over hopefully a long customer lifetime, we felt it was prudent to build an organization that was solely around serving customers. So that that's what we refer to as the global customer organization. Once a customer signs a contract, that team is there to take care of everything that a customer needs from that point in time. That's the group that I took over management responsibilities for as part of my transition into the CEO. So I manage two teams. One is with the global customer organization and one is business operations. And in doing so, what advantages do you think that that brings to the business by by having a single leader that effectively covers finance and operations as well as the customer side of the business? Well, I think in many ways, the development of software as a service is really just a change in the way that software is financed. So if you think about legacy software, waterfall development methodology, large purchase prices, long implementation times, heavy services costs, things like that. The innovation that software as a service provided is the premise was you don't have to do any of those things. You can buy now, access the software via web application that's regularly updated and pay for it on some sort of ratable basis. So whether it's, you know, even if you're paying annually, but or, or in some cases, some software you're paying for monthly. And so, you know, when you're building a SaaS company, almost all high growth SaaS companies are receiving private financing. And the expectation is that you're taking that financing and investing it in smart areas of the business to drive value for your customers and value for your shareholders. And so I think what I've been able to do in my career is, is try to straddle that line as intelligently as I can, which is how do we make sure we're bringing the finance lens to the table? How do we make sure we're taking care of customers, taking care of our shareholders, and certainly taking care of our employees as well? So I found that my background in finance has been helpful for me to navigate those waters in a high growth company, high growth software as a service company that's inevitably working on those tough challenges. And you mentioned there that having a finance lens on the customer service organization um, is useful. How does that manifest itself? What lens does finance bring when you're into that uh, customer service organization? I would characterize a traditional view of customer support and customer service and customer success is they're, they're thought about as often as a cost center. And I think that is fundamentally flawed thinking, especially in the world of software as a service, where you're selling a subscription that you want to retain customers. So, you know, it's one thing if you sell a product that's, you know, off the shelf at the store, and then you're providing, you know, support for that product. And, you know, you have a place people can call if they have questions or if they run into an issue and things like that. In many cases, the way that those teams are managed is like a cost center, like a back office team, which is the the focus is efficiency. How do I minimize the cost and how do I get the most out of it? The way that I think about it and the way that we're thinking about it at Logicate is we think that the global customer organization is in many ways a revenue center. And if you're and if we're intelligent about how much we're investing in that over time, it's going to result in a better customer experience, customers being retaining their business with Logicate and then getting more value out of our software. So in one way, we've been able to go off in many cases the the legacy way to look at it is kind of like you're on defense, you're playing defense. You're like, how can I minimize the investment in this area so that I can spend more on engineering and more on marketing and more on? Well, in our view, we actually want to play offense in this area because we think it is a source of true value for customers and ultimately can lead to really healthy aspects of the business. For example, 
everyone would tell you who's building a high growth company that growth matters, right? Your, your top line revenue growth. Well, I think one of the things that should go right up there next to growth is retention, particularly in SaaS. You're seeing a lot of focus now on companies' net revenue retention, which is how much revenue you had from current customers a year ago, fast forward, add upsells, subtract churn, what happened? And we're seeing that the best companies in the world are showing net revenue retention, certainly in excess of 100%. And in some cases, you know, Zoom, <laughs> which is kind of an anomaly, obviously, but Zoom is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150%. So the same customers are purchasing 50% more one year later than they were the year prior. We see that as a clear lens of customers voting with the value that they're getting from your software and your product with their wallets. And there's really no more powerful data point than that. Many times you can have calls with people and they'll share, you know, hey, I'm, yeah, this is going well. I'm getting some good value. But when they say, actually, I, I'm getting so much value, I'd like to do more. You know, I mentioned earlier the different applications that we offer. We find that customers are often expanding. They land, join us with one application, maybe third-party risk management, and then they move on to, they say, you know what, actually, I'd love to have my controls management application in here because that's going to be one of the controls that I'm managing is all about third-party risk management. So long story short, we're, we believe that retention and growth are on the same level. And when you think about it with that lens and you apply, you know, the you start thinking about the financial resources and so forth that are going to go into these teams. I think you start to think about it a little differently than some of the legacy ways of thinking about customer support and customer success. And we think that that's going to ultimately compound to a significant competitive advantage for us. It's really interesting that you mentioned there the data points. And it sounds like there was certainly a philosophy from the company to want to double down on, or at least a philosophy in terms of wanting to drive value from uh, customer retention, customer renewal, and seeing those on equal footings. But from a finance point of view, you're able to put the numbers to back that up to to reinforce that this is a strategy that will pay, pay dividends going forward in terms of the overall growth of the company. Absolutely. If you're a growing SaaS company, inevitably your base of customers compounds to be a significant portion of your financial profile. And so if you're not applying the resources to make sure that that investment in customers is sound and that they're being taken care of, then you're you're missing the point. If you look at Salesforce, one of the largest, maybe the largest SaaS company in the world, 75% of their new bookings come from customers. And in th they're 20 years ahead of us, so uh, we're not in that zone. But that's inevitably what happens when you're building a subscription business. So the challenge is, in a high-growth company, there's never any shortage of initiatives. So you have to make sure you're, you're right-sizing these investments in, in different areas of the business over time. But I think if that's not on the top of your list, how am I taking care of our current customers? then you're going to find yourself with a significant churn problem and that the the growth that you may be seeing ultimately won't matter to some degree because if you're if you're growing only to really not generate the right value for customers and then to really not retain their business then you haven't done anything and so we're trying to get that right and trying to be really proactive about it and it's never easy but uh because every you know every team every team needs resources and and we have you know no shortage of ambitions to, to sell new products to enter new markets but also take care of customers so i think that's one of the things that i've been trying to bring as a, as a main, make sure we never lose focus of that amongst all sorts of important and competing initiatives. 
you mentioned some key points about growth and retention and renewal. And that I imagine must manifest itself in some key metrics that you look at on a daily basis. Could you perhaps provide an overview, give us some insights into what are those key metrics then that are essential to ensuring that the strategy is occurring and and is on track? There's really the three metrics that I think about when you're evaluating a high growth software company are growth, retention, and efficiency. And so within those metrics, you can slice them a lot of different ways. So I'll give a few examples. But from a growth perspective, we're certainly tracking our financials monthly and regularly. But we could simply look at what is our annual recurring revenue, which is a sum of all the contracts we have signed with customers annualized. We look at that at the end of a period. So what is that at the end of a month? And how does that compare to what was last year? And so, you know, we'll come up with a growth rate. LogicGate's growing in excess of 100% year over year. And that's interesting. But then you want to get down below the covers and say, well, where is that growth coming from? To what degree is it coming from current customers? To what degree is it in terms in the form of expansion and, and increasing the, their spend with LogicGate? And to what degree is it coming from new customers? And then within new customers, as an example, what segments are these small, medium-sized businesses? Are they large customers? We look at growth starting at the top and, and make sure that we feel like the growth is in line with what we're looking to achieve and then start to try to under, get insights about where that growth is coming from or where the really hot spots of traction are. Second, but not in order, I think these three metrics are equivalent and you really have to kind of triangulate on them is retention. So you can do the same thing. You could say, what was our annual recurring revenue base a year ago? If I just solely focus on current customers, if I add expansion, if I subtract churn, what happened? And like I said, if you're seeking to be a really strong software as a service company, that number needs to be over 100%. And the best companies are finding themselves in 105, 110, 115, 120. Meaning if you just take their current customers from a year prior and you had 120% net revenue retention, then those customers expanded their contracts with you by 20%, which is likely not going to happen unless they're seeing value from your software. So I should say they're expanding their contracts 20%. 20%. And then in addition, covering any any churn that you might have seen from, from customers leaving. So that's why that's such a powerful sign of a healthy business. But you can do the same thing with that metric. So it's the formula is add expansion, subtract churn. So where is the expansion coming from? What current customers are expanding their contracts and why? What products are they buying? From a churn perspective, where's the churn coming from? Is it certain segments, certain size customers, certain types of products? So like I said, you know, we we have different applications that we we work with customers on, and some applications can be simpler than others. So are we seeing, you know, for a complex application build, are we seeing churn in that area, right? Might be a question we would ask. So just getting underneath the covers. And then from an efficiency standpoint, we're raising capital from private investors and investing it. And we are spending that capital in different areas of the business. So, you know, we're spending it to in research and development, sales and marketing, our global customer organization, GNA. And so I think you can, for any of those kind of expenses and investment areas, you can take a look at various efficiency metrics and say, how efficient is that spend? How is from a total, you know, like what percent of our total expenses is going towards research and development? Is that enough? How does that number compare to other SaaS companies? The good thing about a SaaS company is there's many, many benchmarks available so you can understand how companies who have 
you know, traveled the road that you're traveling, have done it. Many public companies that you know, post their financial metrics. So you can get good benchmarks, certainly on expenses and growth and retention as well. So, so we're constantly looking at growth, retention, and efficiency. And if you're growing, those numbers have to be, you know, somewhat symmetrical. So if you're growing fast, but not retaining your customers, that's a problem. If you're growing fast, but doing it very inefficiently, that's a problem. If you're retaining customers, but not growing fast enough, that can be a problem too. So it's always calibrating. And, you know, like I said, we're growing 100% year over year or over 100% year over year. And so this is a moving target. (laughs) This is not a financial situation where same as last year, plus 3%, you know, so we have the ground is moving underneath our feet and we have to stay vigilant to make sure we're understanding the dynamics and keeping those three things in check. I should imagine that uh, along with measuring ARR, part of what you just described uh, in terms of metrics would include obviously pipeline as leading indicators, but also LTV and CAC. I should imagine those are are some key metrics as a SaaS business that you, you pay attention to very closely. Absolutely. So I would say the the three metrics I was referring to are definitely lagging indicators. So, you know, when you're looking at growth and retention and efficiency, that already happened. You're analyzing past performance. When we introduce leading indicators, that's where I think the two you mentioned are great ones, which is pipeline. So that's a leading indicator for are we going to hit our growth objectives or not? And we are we constantly are looking at pipeline myself in conjunction with our chief revenue officer and chief marketing officer are constantly staying in sync on where the pipeline is coming from, what the current state of the pipeline is. Based on that, how much confidence do we have that we're going to, you know, be able to achieve our short, medium and long-term financial objectives and things like that. So those discussions are happening and that's the pipeline flow and both the static state of the pipeline and then the, the changes in it are very interesting to understand as a leading indicator to that. And then same with CAC and LTV, that, that is really just a leading indicator to efficiency. CAC and LTV is a forecast of efficiency. It says, if you take your current customers and you make an assumption about how long they are going to stay a customer, and then you you know net out things like expected churn, expected expansion, and all that stuff. What's the value of that customer? And then you can you know do discount. You can discount those cash flows back to back to now and so forth. But and then you look at how efficient you are in acquiring those customers, and then what is going to be the cost to serve that customer over time. And so when you you sum all that up and net it out, it gives you a forecast of your efficiency, and that's where benchmarks like you should have a 3x LTV to CAC is a common benchmark that at least is a common benchmark that gets thrown out. And the reason that that gets thrown out is because basically if you do the inverse of that number, it implies that you have the ability to be a profitable company at some point in time once you acquire enough customers and can overcome your fixed costs. And so I think sometimes that metric isn't well understood in terms of, you know, I think people just kind of take it for what it is, but there's a reason that that is the case is because for you know small high growth companies that aren't yet profitable how do you know if you're on the right track from that from an efficiency standpoint to to ultimately become profitable that's a really a really good way to do it is to to do that forecast of of lifetime value of the customers that you're acquiring and then how much it costs you to acquire them and serve them do you think that the particular metrics that you're describing are particular to fast-growing SaaS companies or SaaS companies in, in general? And obviously certain metrics such as ARR would be, but lifetime value and CAC, is, do you think that that's something that is applicable and, and, and is something that could be adopted by other 
companies with slightly different business models in, in, in other areas as a way to measure effectively efficiency or indeed have a, have a leading indicator on how efficient they are being with cash? Absolutely. I think this type of analysis could be done for any business. If my daughter has a lemonade stand a couple of years from now, I'm going to suggest that she, she run the numbers <laughs> on that. The thing that's nice about SaaS, and I've worked, I, you know, the company I worked in prior to, to Logigate was not a recurring, contractually recurring revenue business. What it was, was a transaction business where we, where we saw very significant reoccurring purchase cycles. So imagine some of these payments companies like a Stripe or a Braintree where the financial engine of let's call it let's say an e-commerce store while Stripe and Braintree are not contractually those e-commerce companies don't contractually owe them, you know, necessarily any flow from the purchases. What can happen over time is you can start to understand the patterns. I think that's where SaaS has an advantage is it's a known it's more of a known than, a, say, a transaction business because you're signing a contract that says I'm going to, you know, use your service for this period of time and I'm going to pay you this money. For a transaction business, you're guessing, right? So you're guessing that based on the historical patterns of what's going to happen in the future. I think it's a little bit more known for a SaaS company, and so that just introduces a little bit more complexity and, and make sure making sure that you have the right assumptions. But for a product, a non-subscription business, absolutely, you should be doing that. Those understanding those metrics and and thinking about it, some of the variables might be a little less known than in a SaaS company, but if you can develop some veracity in your assumptions based on historical performance, then I think you'll come up with some interesting answers. And at the end of the day, I think you should continue the thought. The point is, how do you use that information to make good decisions now? And so, for example, we, you know, I, I always talk, you start at the high level, right? So, okay, are you three, four, five X LTV to CAC? That's really not that useful. What is useful is why. And so that's where, you know, you'll hear companies that are thinking about this deeply saying, what's our customer acquisition cost by channel? What's our customer acquisition cost by segment? And you start stack ranking those and you're like, man, I'm getting really good traction here. How do I double down on that channel? Or, you know what, this is just this investment in this certain channel for acquiring customers is really not paying off. We got to do something about that. So I think you certainly want to take that take some of these summary analyses down to something that can generate insights that you can ultimately action. For anyone who's listening who doesn't have these particular metrics in place today, when we talk specifically about LTV and CAC, what pragmatic advice or, or steps might they be able to, that you would recommend that they start to take in order to begin to introduce these metrics and these concepts to better drive and insights into the efficiency of their business? Yeah, so I think two things. One is start with the basics and spend the time on it. So make sure that you really know how much revenue you're generating, how many customers that is being generated by, what the flow of those customers are, how many new customers did you have this month, how many customers left this month. You know, you can continue that thought a little bit, but it's really it's really basic. It's like just understanding the flow of your revenue, understanding the flow of your customers and understanding the flow of your expenses. The expenses is a little trickier because you're going to want to segment your expenses in, in ways that will be useful to you. So I'll say one thing that we did really early at Logicate is we actually still use QuickBooks. And we have a very, I, I think, sophisticated financial operation. But we use QuickBooks. So, you know, this is not about like getting the fanciest, shiniest tool to do all the work for you. But one thing we did within QuickBooks is we, instead of, you know, segmented like when you want to do customer acquisition and understand 
where are you spending money to acquire customers and is it paying off? It will not be super helpful for you if you have an accounting code that's called lead generation and you throw all the money that you spent on lead generation into that accounting code. And then you're, you know, and then you're doing your, your CAC and you're saying, how many customers did I get? Okay. hundred thousand investment here. And I got 10 customers. So 10,000. Well, that's not going to be that useful. So you're going to want to understand where specifically that lead gen investment was spent. And that's going to be a combination of channels and vendors. So, you know, many companies, for example, advertise on Google. So you might want to have a specific code called Google so that you can always know I spent this much on Google. Whereas maybe something that's a little bit more generic, you know, you could say field marketing and events, right? Like events. So maybe you had a few small events and you sum them up into an events line. But I think just sitting down and saying, what are the numerators I'm going to want to know? (laughs) And what are the denominators I'm going to want to know? In the case of customer acquisition costs, you want to know how many customers you got from a channel is the denominator. The numerator is what did you spend? But if you do that, you're just paying yourself off because every month and every quarter, you're, it's going to be much simpler for you to get these insights than if you're trying to like redo it every time. Okay, I know, well, let me parse the lead gen from you know our general ledger again. <laughs> just set it up right the first time and just set it up as basic as you can and build from there would be my advice. And like I said, I was the 29th employee when when I got to Logicate. And, and so we, it was not long ago that we were making our own decisions about how to how to set these things up in a way that would scale over time. And I think we've made more right decisions than wrong decisions, but definitely some some learnings as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really great pragmatic advice that anyone can take and to start to work on immediately. And just to sort of close the loop on your combined role of CFO, COO, do you think that that has enabled or do other finance leaders need to take responsibility for those additional parts of the business, especially within business operations to facilitate getting to the point where they're looking at these sorts of metrics or as standalone, or there's more standalone function of finance as a CFO, they have the ability to do that from, from that position too. I think this evolution for me and the the role that I've taken on is mostly a function of Logigate as a business and the business partners that I've been working with on our executive team to build the company. And we felt like there was an opportunity to do something and that there was confidence, you know, placed in me to try to help drive it with in terms of taking our building our global customer organization from here into the future. And my understanding is actually that this evolution has become a little bit more common. I saw some stats about you know how many combined CFO, COOs, there are, I don't remember the specific number, but I know that it was higher than I thought and that it was growing. And so I think the theme there that I've taken is the CFO role is changing. In some cases in the past, it has been much more focused on the accounting work that needs to be done, producing you know useful financial statements that can be analyzed and reviewed. And you know certainly there's Differences where companies are, you know, for financing companies that have significant treasury departments and things like that. You know, United Airlines and and American Airlines have, you know, they're they're buying huge jets and financing. So certainly the complexity of the financial operation can change. But in a more generic sense, I would say the CFO role has no longer one of producing the financial statements and making sure that those are done on time and, and accurately. Or at least I would say we as professionals should not let it be that. I think the lens that I've always tried to bring to the job is 
what can I do to actually impact the results on the financial statements that we're going to report? Because I think going down that thread is where you can find that the financial skill set that you bring to the table can add a lot of value across the company. If you can build the right partnerships with others in the company, help to learn from their perspectives, what are they seeing with customers and as we're building products and things like that. And then you bring your financial skill set to the table. I think everything gets better. It's super interesting. And um, it's the start of the year, 2021. What are your priorities that you're setting for the year? We are just wrapping up our strategic planning where fiscal year ends in this month in January. So we're chasing our end of the fiscal year. I will recommend that, by the way, to anyone who would like to do so is separating the the holidays from the end of the year and performance reviews and financial close and all that stuff is it's made it much more enjoyable holiday experience for our team. So like I said, when we're growing over 100% a year, maintaining that growth on bigger numbers means we need to be prepared for bigger scale across the entire organization. So we're thinking about how do we maintain that growth and find new market opportunities. We're actually um, going to be spending, being really proactive for the first time ever to expand into the UK this year. So maybe I'll come over and, and see you sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> but so how do we keep focus on growth? How do we keep finding different opportunities to add value to customers in, in different markets and different categories with our product? How do we take care of customers better this year than we did last year? And that's, you know, ultimately the business results going to be driven by that is, is retention. And then how do we continue to invest in the right ways across the entire business from product and engineering to sales and marketing to our customer organization and then to um, the back office business operations teams? How do we... In- develop the right investment portfolio to make sure that all of those teams can be successful and scale as rapidly as they need to, to keep up with what we're trying to do for customers. So interestingly, if you write down the priorities, they don't change too much from year to year, but they take on different different shapes and sizes. And has any of those priorities, the shapes and sizes of those priorities, albeit that they, the priorities themselves stay the same, but have those priorities been impacted by recent events, the crisis, and, and in what way? I would say in general, we, were, we felt pretty fortunate that the need for risk management solutions seems to have stayed fairly consistent based on our experience in, in 2020. Back in March, we basically took a pause, slowed down hiring a bit just to get our bearings and see what was what was going to happen. And then as the year progressed, we we learned that customers were still still proceeding with their projects and their goals on this front. So I think, you know, you'd rather be lucky than good on that one. Who knows who knows how that would progress? And I think it's been a tough year for all businesses to plan. For us, there hasn't been a ton of impact in terms of the you know the global pandemic and, and things like that. So so we feel fortunate about that. Yeah, certainly a fortunate position for technology companies in particular seem to have been in a fortunate position over the, the course of last year. And you mentioned actually in your in your priorities that you're looking to expand internationally. What are some of the challenges that you, from a finance perspective, that you face as you grow from your home country abroad? This is something we're actively thinking about so that we can get it right. It is significant. It is not, you know, I would say actually right now we we have about 10% of our customers are not located in the United States. They're in Canada or Australia or the United Kingdom. So far, those customers have 
you know, they knew what they were signing up for. They're signing up for a U.S. based company that has, you know, central time business hours and, and things like that. So that under our current thinking about expansion, that's all going to change. And the question is how fast and how much. But we're thinking about how do we serve customers in different time zones? Where is the data going to reside? So we, you know, we're all of our software is, is hosted in, in cloud. And so we, but we have to think about where we have the data hosted based on certain data privacy regulations and other legal considerations. We have to think about how do we, from a development standpoint, you know, things like languages and other kind of development operations requirements. So we're thinking about all those aspects, but we see a, a very attractive market opportunity to be able to help customers in different areas of the globe outside of the United States. And then actually even another thing from a financial perspective, you know, introduces new currencies, um, things like that. So perhaps that's one of the things you were getting at. So we're thinking about all of that and trying to make sure we get it right. That's one of the things I was I was I wanted to just double click on was some of those financial operations challenges that you're grappling with right now. We have a couple of customers paying us in non-US dollars. And we've been able to build a fairly straightforward system using using our bank and getting the currency changed over when those payments hit. And another difference is, I mean, we're our customers are only paying us once a year. You know, it's not like we have a high volume of transactions or float in international currencies or things like that that we have to manage. So, you know, the concept of hiring employees in different parts of the world will also, not just customers, but employees will also introduce unique requirements to, you know, certainly pay compensation in a, in a different currency. And then as is pertinent to Soldo. So thinking about how those employees can, you know, process expenses and things like that. I think we're still a little bit of ways away from, from hiring outside of the United States, but it's coming. And, and so we're trying to, trying to think about what we need to be prepared for and make sure we can do it. It's clearly some really exciting times for for LogicGate ahead. You've been a CFO for how many years now? Five years. And if you um, were able to give a piece of advice for any new CFO that perhaps you would have wanted to have heard when you became a CFO, what might that piece of advice be? I think it's really advice that I think it probably serves in any job. There's this tendency to when you get a new job and, and you get a promotion or um, you're in a, you're in a more senior role than you've ever been in before is to try to try to act a certain way or be something that you're not. That's just normal pressure. You want to yeah, live up to what you feel the expectations are. But I think one of the things that has served me well, and I've seen it serve others well is continue to approach these things with a level of humility. You don't need to know everything. It's actually better to say you don't know the answer, but you'll, go figure it out than to give the wrong answer. But sometimes the pressure of the situation can prevent you from doing that. So I, I think people like to work with other people who are, you know, they feel are trustworthy and honest and, and humble. So even as you're you're getting into perhaps a more senior role than you've ever been in before, don't lose sight of that because at the end of the day, I think, you know, building companies is is kind of a people business. And so you've got a job to do. And on some days, you'll do it better than than other days. But just bring a level of humility and, and a growth mindset, right? Your first year as a CFO, you're going to know less than your second, which is you're going to know less than your third. So just because you're maybe at the top of your organization doesn't mean your growth mindset needs to go away or that your learning opportunity has subsided. So I think just stay vigilant on those two points is what is what I try to do and with varying degrees of success on different days. But that would be my advice. I'd agree with that. It's it's easy to think that as you as you go into a more senior role that you should know all the answers. And so the advice is essentially stay humble and, and ask questions. Uh, don't be afraid to ask those questions. It's going to 
prevent you from understanding really the insights that, 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 that you need to have to be successful in your role. Absolutely. And actually, I would say one thing further, it'll create a better experience for your team members, right? You're going to find yourself building a team of very talented people who can accomplish a lot on their own. It's what we all want to do. Absolutely. Is there any particular book that you've, yeah, I mean, you mentioned growth mindset. Is that a reference to that particular book? Are there, are there particular books of, with regards to leadership that, you, that you've read that have provided the, some of the advice that you put into practice on an everyday basis? The cliche answers are the right ones, which is high output management, which is Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel, and then Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. So I really think those books provide sound traveled advice. The two that I have liked that kind of from, I think are less tactical from a business perspective, but are, but have been valuable to me is, is a book called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. And he's the person who was the subject of the movie in the book called Searching for Bobby Fischer. So he was a young chess prodigy that rose to the top of the chess world and then ultimately rose to the top of the martial arts world with something called push hands. And so he basically spends a few hundred pages just deconstructing the learning cycle and, and how to think about learning, which I think some of those takeaways have stuck with me. The final one would be um, How Will You Measure Your Life? by Clayton Christensen, who unfortunately just passed. Those books, I think, were, you know, as I think about ones I've read in the last several years are are ones that, you know, as a collection have provided me some, I think, well-rounded thoughts that have kept me going in a lot of ways. Fantastic. Kevin, it's been fantastic having you on the show. It's been really insightful to hear so much about the SaaS business, your role as CFO, COO, and the metrics that you look at amongst amongst other things. So thank you so much for, for joining the show. It's been great having you on. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Is there any financial software or technology new to your company this year? Nothing new. No, we've got a pretty robust stack, I think, that's doing the job for us. We are staying top of mind on some of the different technologies. Like I said, we're on QuickBooks. When's the right time to move to an ERP from a financial planning standpoint? Is there a point in time where we want to move to a more sophisticated financial planning software and things like that? So we're kind of in contemplative mode on those but so far the stack we have has been working well but i can unpack it for you if you'd like that was going to be my second question yeah what is that stack that you use yeah so we use quickbooks for our accounting we have built a lot in salesforce to be useful to the finance and accounting team as we're pulling various metrics and then we have a piece of software that can send data from salesforce to google sheets which allows us to then manipulate that data. And for example, we have, when we're doing our deferred revenue schedule, you know, we're a software subscription software company and we're building recognized revenue up front and then amortize it over the life of the contract. And 
So we have to build a complex deferred revenue schedule by customer every month. Well, we are able to get that data from, from Salesforce, send it over to Google Sheets. We've already built out all the formulas and then the deferred revenue schedule gets created automatically. So we've invested in some time saving and, and the idea was efficient processes around that. So Salesforce, from a business intelligence perspective, we use Domo, which I think was more basic than some of the other business intelligence platforms out there, but it serves our, our needs. You know, if you're maybe uh, analyzing millions and millions of rows of data, maybe it wouldn't serve your purpose. But for us and just our business, it, that serves a great purpose to provide simple uh, visuals for understanding different aspects of the business. We don't have a big credit card program or anything like that, but we do some credit cards through our bank. We are evaluating bringing on some software for to help with uh, sales tax compliance. So we're in the middle of a review cycle on that. We use Gusto for our payroll and HRIS system. That's been solid. We still do do a lot of work in Excel and, and Google Sheets just to for our various financial models and things like that. Yeah, I don't think either of those tools are going away anytime soon. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. One last thing. If you have a question you'd like to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm to submit it. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense with custom budgets and track transactions in real time, connect accounting software to automate reporting, then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.